Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Pep Talk by the Club of Pep. My name is Ellie Spicer and I'm the president of the Club of Pep and Mark has asked me to join him to host the podcast today as we welcome on Rebecca and Lowry from the University of York Speak Free Society who are advocating against instances of sexual violence and assault. This is not only a hugely important issue on campus and universities, but is also rooted in a very political, wider discourse, and we hope to touch on both of these aspects today. So I hope you find our conversations useful and informative, as we are very excited to welcome both Lowry and Rebecca. Please note that this episode carries a trigger warning, as it includes discussions of sexual violence and sexual assault. I'm uh, joined today by the Speak Free Society, their founder, Rebecca and uh, Lowry, and then also the president of the Club of Pep, Ellie. Thank you guys so much for being here, being on the show. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So if we could just start with the Speak Free Society, uh, and if you could just sort of describe what it's about, why you founded it, the, the sort of central mission of the society. Um, so basically, Speak Free Society is mainly focused on advocating for those who experience sexual violence or assault, um, because it can be an incredibly isolating experience and people can feel very alone. Um, just one in 10 students report sexual assault at university and only 2% of those are actually satisfied with the reporting process. So I think we as a society feel that if we can create a safe place where people can feel less alone and less silenced, then we would have succeeded. Um, I started from my own personal experience. I felt that there was a gap at York and in society uh, where Speak Free fits in. Um, someone that isn't afraid to speak out against instances of sexual assault and advocate for survivors and hold those accountable that deserve to be. Um, so yeah, our kind of saying is change the precedent. Uh, it's a simple way of saying that we need to enact change. Um, for too long we've sat back and let this stigma of silence and repression continue. So we're just encouraging people to act um, and be an active bystander and speak up. Yeah, I think that all sounds great. I think the work that you guys are doing as, as a society is so important. Um, and I think that your phrase, change the precedent, is, is really, really great because, yeah, as the statistics that you've provided have shown, there definitely is a really awful precedent, that pres precedent there. Um, they're very shocking, it's awful. And yeah, I think that the work you're doing is really important, especially the points that you make about being active bystanders, because this doesn't just, this shouldn't just involve um, the individual victims. I can entirely agree this is a, a community goal. Um, so continuing from that, where have you found specifically the greatest shortcomings in the university's policies and actions around sexual misconduct and violence to have been? Um, as a society, uh, we've talked about it and we think the greatest shortcoming is the safeguarding of students. Um, the university claims there's been a no-tolerance policy of sexual violence, uh, but there have been several exceptions to this, uh, as of, like, recently. Um, they have so far failed to change uh, since the Joseph McEwing case and now the conviction of Fazal Damash, the PhD student, who was still able to run in the local council elections despite the allegations against him. Uh, and if you just read the survivor's account from Dimash, it's just heartbreaking. And if that doesn't want, make you want to hold the university accountable, I don't know what will. It's just there needs to be a change in policy and a direct act from the university instead of just speaking out after the events to prevent it happening again. 
Could you talk a little bit more about the Joseph McEwen case and uh, Imogen Horrocks' uh, open letter and the sort of implications of that letter, the, the change.org petition, and sort of your efforts surrounding that? Yeah, so basically the Joseph McEwen case, um, that was when he was accused of rape and he was, as the university claimed, taken away from university. He wasn't able to go back there, uh, but it was actually discovered that he went... Uh, back in summer and worked in the physics department with a female associate very closely to her while he was being in the process of the allegations against him and in the trial. Um, York released a statement after this saying saying they don't have any kind of policy, they don't have um, a, any policy to, to kind of work with people who, uh, subject, who have done sexual violence and things like that, but they didn't address the fact that they'd let him work there over summer um, that they excused him as being a brilliant student and to excuse him from his crimes is just not something any university that should be supporting students should do. Um, and basically Imogen's letter was incredibly important because it filled the gap that York should have been actively promoting. Uh, the fact that a university who supposedly is centred around supporting students could blatantly risk their safety is quite frankly insane to me. I don't understand. Uh, I think... The point of the open letter and the petition now, especially with the recent case that's arised with Fazal Damash, um, is that that shouldn't have to be there in the first place. There shouldn't have to be a petition. There shouldn't have to have been an open letter. The university should be actively promoting against even engaging with people who have committed any act of sexual violence, whether it be allegation or a conviction. Uh, it's just not OK. Um, and it's not enough to just release a statement of apology uh, after a conviction they need to actively put systems in place to ensure this doesn't happen again. I think um, reactionary measures are obviously better than nothing, but the fact of the matter is there shouldn't have to be reactionary measures. They should have taken the time and effort to implement these preventative measures that didn't have to be a petition from a student. That didn't have that shouldn't have had to have happened, as Rebecca was saying. Yeah, I think that um, your discussion of this Joseph McCurran case um, is a really important case study when we're looking at these things and I agree that Imogen Horrocks open letter was extremely important um, and there's a number of really interesting takeaways we can have for that I think from that letter I think um, one that I sort of noticed um, that I picked up on as well sort of just reading about the case was how um, Joseph McCone was sort of referred to a lot in, in headlines as brilliant as an amazing scientist um, his academic achievements were sort of applauded in the same article and even the same sentence in a headline um, as reports of this sexual assault, um, which I thought was was crazy. It was it was very interesting, um, and yeah, I just just like that obviously makes no sense to me. And I think that is very much linked to your phrase of changing the precedent because that just seems like an awful precedent to be set at all. Um, so moving on from that. What can the Uni of York and wider and the wider York sort of student body expect from this Beak Free Society moving forward? Um, so obviously we've just begun, but we have quite significant goals that we do want to achieve. Um, as you've seen, we're not afraid to hold the university accountable uh, for their failures in protecting students. Um, but in terms of wider goals, to be able to actively have a role in improving and changing the policies and to help facilitate actual change would be incredible that would be really great 
Um, I would also like to see a number, an improvement in the number of people reporting um, and like an improvement in the university services uh, to ensure a safe experience for students who decide to report. Um, because obviously that's incredibly important is when we talk about holding people accountable, that if we can provide a safe place for students to report, there'll be more reports and then more people will be discouraged from committing something like this. Because if we're shown to be standing up against it, there's going to be a lot of opposition. And I feel that if we actually provide a safe space for students, then there's going to be less of this negative, these negative actions. Um, but in the near future, we have a lot uh, planned for next month, which is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Um, and we've had meetings with Red Flag Campaign and Last Taboo. Um, yeah. So the petition and you guys in general like to talk a lot about the reactionary versus preventative measures and how the university so f thus far has really only uh, been re reactionary to, to the cases sort of brought up by individuals and societies like yours. Laurie, if I could ask you, what do reactionary measures mean? And, and then what do the preventative measures that you're looking at sort of implementing as a society, what do those look like? Well, to me, reactionary measures are statements afterwards saying, oh, we're really sorry that this happened and we promise it won't happen again. And now we're looking at changing our policy. But to me, preventative is implementing those policies from as early as possible. And it's, it's, for me, it's been very transparent with the student body about what you're doing. It's all well and good saying after something like the Joseph McEwen case happened, saying, um, oh, you know, we've got all these things now that we're doing. We're doing this now, now, now. But that should have happened earlier. And we should have been aware that these were the policies you had and these were the steps you were taking, which obviously they didn't take. So I think for preventative, it's just being really honest about what they're doing and where they're looking to go in the future. And where would you like them to go just in terms of specific policies that Speak Free would like to see implemented? I think with specific policies, obviously an important one would be not allowing people with serious allegations to work in close quarters with the student body, like what happened with Joseph McEwen when he was here over the summer. Um, that's obviously a really important one because you don't want to them for, you don't want for students to be exposed to that sort of, it's a danger essentially. Um, so I think that's a big one. Uh, I'm not sure what are the specific ones we have right now, but they are things that we as a, as a society and as a committee are looking to sort of um, bring forward. And, you know, that's the sort of work as well that The Last Taboo and Red Flag are doing as well. Yeah, I feel like that all sounds, that all sounds great. I think there's some really good points there. Um, and I'm I'm so glad that you guys have been able to come on our podcast for so many reasons. But I think also just for a more general overview, obviously, um, as the Club of Pep, sort of with more of like a political focus, I think this conversation does very much exist in a broader political debate. And I think um, sexual assault and sexual violence is very much linked to um, and how it's reported um, and what happens after it's reported um, is very much linked to sort of politics, power hierarchies. Um, so yeah, it's very much embedded in a bigger discourse. Um, so I think maybe moving on in this way um, and looking at the Me Too movement, um, it's been said that there's a lot of issues over 
how people accused of sexual misconduct should be held accountable and what the standard of evidence should be. I'm taking that from an article from the New York Times. Um, and I think this is a huge part of the discussion of what the standards of evidence should be. Um, yeah, and just because obviously I think part of the reason why there's such a low level of people um, who are charged is due to sort of issues around evidence. So I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, um, sort of what should the public dialogue around these cases look or sound like? I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think for me and obviously our committee and most of the people I talk to, the standard of evidence should really be the survivor's account. Um, it is incredibly difficult for a survivor to go to the police and report an attack, let alone stand in front of a court and possibly be accused of lying or their attacker is freed because there isn't enough evidence against them. Um, obviously, it's more difficult in the high-profile cases of the Me Too movement. Uh, I know many survivors have NDAs against them, um, or they couldn't testify in court because of their identity. Um, but obviously, unfortunately, when it comes to the law and the trial, uh, just the testimony isn't enough. And in those cases where I've spoken about how sexual assault makes someone feel incredibly alone, and in those instances, you usually are alone, so there isn't going to be witnesses or someone who can testify for it. There's going to be very limited evidence, especially if someone decides to report it later, um, because obviously trauma affects people in different ways. Some people uh, with trauma, they kind of push it back of their head. They don't like to think about it. So if someone decides they're going to report it six months later, that will be used against them in a trial. Um, so clearly it's very difficult, and I don't see the law changing anytime soon to kind of make it easier for survivors and that's definitely a reason why people don't support it and don't report it more often. Um, I mean if you look at Brett Kavanagh and um, Christine Ford by just speaking up against someone who attempted to abuse her she risked losing her job and she received death threats so it's I can see from a survivor's point of view, if you see everything happened, even with people who have all the money, um, that they can just make things go away, I don't think that it's going to change anytime soon. Do you see any conflict between the sort of standard of proof that uh, you, you, it sounds like you're sort of favoring here with the survivor's account and the sort of attention paid to the, uh, I mean, emotional and physical impact on the survivor and the sort of Western common law burden of proof standard of evidence that we've sort of held to for, for generations in our courts, in our laws, uh, and in sentencing and dealing with criminal behavior. Yeah, I think obviously it is innocent until proven guilty. That's what we stand for. Uh, but I think that cases of sexual assault and sexual violence are not the same as other cases, there isn't necessarily going to be a clear motive or clear, it's, it's difficult and I don't think that they should be assessed in the same way. Uh, I think there needs to be a greater public understanding of what actually happens and what actually brings someone to report it in the first place. I mean, we've seen with Prince Andrew, like he has all these allegations against him, but what ha what's happened to him? So if, if people see this, they're not going to believe in this, like the court system. They're not going to believe that anything will happen if they report it. Um, I definitely think there's a detrimental dialogue surrounding these cases and in the way that our court systems take part in these cases is just not 
right and I think it needs to definitely change. How would you like it to change? Just sort of speaking on, on, on more specifics and policy that Speak for You would like to sort of push forward. Um, I think, well, in terms of people coming forward at the university, um, obviously I've said about only 2% of people are satisfied with their reporting process. So I think when it comes to someone reporting, the first thing that people think to do is ask questions. Um, what happened? Where were you? What were you wearing? And that in itself can be incredibly triggering to someone who's just experienced sexual assault. Um, and I think the first thing that you have to do when someone like that comes forward, you need to think about if they're telling the truth, you have to believe them and you have to investigate it. Um, and obviously the police say that obviously you should report it as soon as possible so they can have enough evidence. Um, but again, that is incredibly triggering, triggering for most people. They might not accept that it's happened to them. Um, so with the university, just making sure there's a safe experience that we educate freshers coming in, we educate students coming in, that there are support systems available always, that there is somewhere they can go to that might not necessarily be the police. I know sexual violence liaison officers are really great with that kind of thing. You just have to drop them an email, you can get a meeting. Um, so in terms of the university, obviously, we need to make sure that there's a safe space where they can go and feel that they can report because it's incredibly intimidating to just go straight to the police. Um, I think in terms of wider policies with the government and things, I don't feel like there will be a change in the way court, the courts address victims of sexual assault and violence, uh, especially not for a long time. Obviously, there needs to be changes in the law, I feel, for domestic violence and things like that, but um, I don't see it changing anytime soon. Obviously, we'll try our best with the university um, and hope that brings change from there. I'm a law student, so this area is something that I'm particularly interested in and sort of the mechanisms of change. Like the beauty of our legal system is that there is that mixture of common law and statute and so that there is lots of vehicles for change, but it just depends on sort of the people in power to utilise those. Um, and the fact of the common law is that it's so dynamic and we can change. Like it's so, it seems simple that they could just overrule a judgment and then we have more protection for victims of domestic abuse or we have more protection in terms of sexual assault. So I just think really it depends on us sort of, you know, petitioning MPs for tabling of bills and things like that. And we should be able to enact change soon. I know it sounds really difficult, but with this conversation being out there in the public sphere and people are talking about it I think change will come through those avenues yeah I think I think that's so great to have the perspective of someone with your sort of knowledge of the legal system Larry because I guess that's something that you know I have a limited knowledge of so that's that's like super interesting and that adds such an important dimension to the debate and I think I just just going back to something that Rebecca was talking about about sort of the the shift um in society and I guess in a legal basis from sort of victim blaming to just believing victims I think very much now that there is sort of this instinct to victim blame and I think we need to completely turn that on its head and sort of have an instinct to just believe believe victims um very much and also I think also you mentioned um in terms of how to improve this university um you mentioned sort of 
um, getting through to, to freshers as they join the university. I don't know about you guys, but when I joined, I very clearly remember um, having a very brief talk um, from my college about consent, um, which is very brief. It was, you know, touched on very lightly in a very lighthearted way. Um, and I just, I don't know what um, everyone else's experience was of this and how you think this might be able to be improved. Yeah, um, when I joined, they played the tea video. I don't know if you've yeah, seen that video. video. Um, yeah, obviously, it is a great video. And obviously, teaching fresh about consent in a lighthearted way is good. Um, you don't want to come down heavy on them on their first day. But I think definitely in situations in freshers, these are students who haven't necessarily been away from home before. They're in a new place. Um, I'm sure if I looked up, there'd definitely be some higher statistics around sexual assault at the beginning of university. I mean, you're taking away someone from their hometown, probably, and then moving miles away. So they don't know where they are, really. They're getting drunk every night. Uh, it's a very high-pressure situation. I know that... I don't... I think a lot of people may feel pressure to drink or pressure to do things that they don't necessarily want to do because it's kind of the culture of freshers. If you, you go out and you get drunk and you do, like, it's, it's, it's difficult in that kind of group mentality situation. I don't think anyone wants to feel left out. Um, so I think there can definitely be some kind of nature of, well, it's all right, it's freshers. Like, that's what's, what happens in freshers. It's, it's OK. Um, so I think there definitely needs to be not a harder stance, not like yelling at freshers and everything like this. Um, but just like, I, I know having the sticks and stuff is a good idea because there's someone there to look out for them. Um, and I really support them having those people um, because obviously they're going to need a lot of support. Like they don't know anyone uh, when they first join. Um, but I think the university also need to make very clear their stance on sexual violence. Um, I can't remember if they did really when I had my joining talk. I'm not sure if it's different now because obviously it's all online. Um, but they need to be absolutely clear they have a no-tolerance policy. Um, whether that be... It might actually be influential to get a speaker in or to get someone, to get a survivor in to maybe drill it home to people that these things do happen. Because I feel like a lot of people might have that mentality, well, it's OK, it happens to other people, but it won't happen to me. Um unfortunately in this case that that's mentality that it doesn't really hold up uh especially in these group situations uh when there's millions of people uh in in york and in society that don't feel the same um so i think the university needs to make it absolutely clear uh, like we're talking about with preventative measures that they will not abide anything to do with this um and obviously, I know they do advocate their support services, but if they could get SVLO to talk, maybe, or someone to talk, I think that would be a lot more helpful to the freshers. Because um, obviously, it's, I think it's one of the most... I think it's probably the weirdest time in university for people. Like, the first couple of weeks is where they're just a little Bambi on ice <laughs> when they first join. They don't really know what they're doing. Um, so I think that's probably when they're most vulnerable. With some specific cases, it can it can often be the case that there is a, a an individual who reports uh, an instance of sexual violence or sexual assault, and then from the the person that they accuse, there's a categorical denial that that ever took place, 
and that whatever took place was was sort of consensual and and that's that in those kind of he said he said she said situations what should the the public dialogue be around those cases i think obviously we've spoken a lot about victim blaming already um but this kind of thing it's it's difficult because obviously my first instinct would be to believe um the victim and understand that i know obviously there's a lot of things like, oh, they must be doing it for the money when it comes to these high-profile cases, but it's someone's personal experience that's probably caused me a lot of trauma that they're speaking out for. And if there's constantly people doubting them and telling them they're lying, then that encourages so many other people to just not do it, to not report it. And it's like this repetitive cycle that we've stuck society in where someone reports it, they're lying, there's not enough evidence, they're not convicted. And then the next person looks at this on the news and like, well, I'm not going to report it now because what's the point? What's the point of going through all the trauma without having any kind of result? I mean, we've spoken about Me Too already. Um, I know that we're going to talk about Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. and things. Um, and obviously with Harvey Weinstein, he was sentenced to 23 years um, despite denying everything because he did commit those crimes and... Obviously, the jury found that he did. Um, but the fact that he was still held up, that he would, um, that he didn't do it and everything, it's just, it's quite shocking to me, to be honest. I don't understand how that could be. Because obviously with Leo C.K., he apologised and he said that he wielded his power responsibly and things like that. Um, that he still repeatedly abused women. He didn't stop after the first time. Um, so I think we have to not separate the crime from the person, but possibly bring them more together because you can't really be like, well, they're saying they didn't do it, so they probably didn't do it. You should be like, well, why are they saying, why is the survivor reporting it in the first place? Why would they possibly put them through so much trauma and pain to report it in the first place just to bring someone else down? I don't think that would be something that anyone would do with a right moral compass, uh, I don't think anyone would willingly want to destroy someone else's life. Um, so, yeah. To play the devil's advocate here, it seems it seems like that is I, I'm, maybe not a valid thing to do, but a, a possible thing to do where an allegation is misfounded or sort of uh, uh, alleged out of some sort of uh, some sort of spite. So with that being the case as as a possibility, what should uh, sort of not the the high profile cases, but what I was talking sort of about earlier in a he said he said she said situation at the university, for example. What should our sort of discourse as students, as a community, and as a, as a sort of university body be around those cases? Is there any sort of nuance for the individual who the allegations are are against, or is it is it just support for the the survivor? of that allegation uh, is the sort of be-all, end-all of that case. Mm -hmm. I think, obviously, unfortunately, obviously we've spoken about innocent until proven guilty. Um, So, for example, if someone you knew at university was accused of these kind of things, it would obviously be very difficult from a moral standpoint for you to be able to to think that someone like that would commit these acts. Um, But... Even in that case, I think it is still so important to side with the survivor. Um, I mean, less than 4% of 
cases um, are from people who are like exaggerated and things. So it's really not an issue of people false reporting things or trying to bring people down. That really doesn't happen very often. But the kind of stigma that we've got into is that if someone tends to report it late or they don't want their identity seen, that they're lying and that is just completely detrimental to to what we're trying to facilitate, which is safe reporting and a reduction in these instances happening at university. Um, and obviously, when you're in university and you're in this huge mass of students, there's lots of opinions flying around and there can be a lot of changes and differences between people. Obviously, some people won't agree, but I think really everyone... We're all students, we all experience the same things. If you can honestly say someone is lying when they have had the strength to report something, it is, I don't think people, that's just not something that I would do, that's not something I believe in. Um, it's basically by, obviously as well, like at the university, I feel like a lot of people are confused by sexual assault, sexual violence, don't really know what it means, uh, why people aren't convicted and everything. So if people at university were to educate themselves um, and be engaged, then I think it would really change uh, kind of the attitudes towards it. Um, because for people to just jump the gun and immediately say, oh, you're lying, it's not true, I know them, um, then I think that's quite detrimental to any kind of future report that someone might put through. Yeah, I think that's all such a good point, Rebecca. And I think that Mark, although that sort of argument that you raised is very frustrating. I think it is actually quite um, useful to bring it up because I think it's just so common. I see it, we see it online all the time, even sort of boys that we might know um, always sort of stress this thing of, oh yeah, but you know, what about the, what about the accusations that are lies? What about the accusations that are false? And that is just oh it's so common and it yeah it it really frustrates me because I do just want to bring even more attention to that statistic that you used Rebecca and I've been looking at it as well my research from the Home Office that only four percent of cases of sexual violence that reported to the UK police were found or even suspected to be false and I think that's they estimate that only around 10% of sexual assaults are even reported so that's four percent of that reported 10% so it's just such tiny percentage so I think you know when we always say you should believe victims it sounds you know it sounds sort of you know counterintuitive it's innocent until proven guilty but statistically if you when you believe the victim you, you're much more like like that's much more likely to sort of be be right um so yeah I think that 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 is an important discussion to be had it's frustrating that that argument is used so frequently but I think um it's a good, it's a, yeah, it needed to be raised, Mark, so I appreciated that. Um, yeah, and I think then, I guess moving on, Rebecca, you obviously referred as well to the Harvey Weinstein case um, and distinctions in this between other cases such as Louis C.K. And that goes back to what Mark was saying about, you know, when um, someone's accused and they flat out deny it in comparison to if someone admits and apologises. You did touch on this briefly, Rebecca, but I was wondering if either of you um, had anything else to say about the sort of distinctions that should be made um, between these like two sort of figures, the Harvey Weinstein figures and comparatively the Louis C.K. figures. 
especially when there's that power dynamic in place when you have when you have a man in a position of power and uh and sort of female employees or just sort of those cases mm-hmm. yeah i mean in regards to louis ck um in his statement he obviously said he felt remorse um and obviously it's very different from someone like harvey reinstein Larry Nasser, who just keeps denying and denying despite the mounting evidence against them, but it still doesn't excuse him from what he's already done, and he shouldn't be viewed as above them because he's admitted to it. He's still assaulted over five women. Uh, he can't be seen as some kind of heroic, oh, but look, he sent a 500-word apology. Uh, that is just not how it should be. Um, it's not that he felt remorse after he abused one woman, he continued to do it. He's a repeat offender. Um, he might feel remorse now that it's been advertised, but he didn't then. He felt that his power brought him above the legal system, brought him above these women, that he felt that he could dominate them. Um, and that's the same with other men that have been accused in the Me Too movement. That's the same with Harvey Weinstein. He felt that his power was above society and above the legal system um, and it clearly isn't and it that cannot continue and that should not continue. If we can <laughs> focus this discussion a little bit, I'd be interested to hear uh, what you have to say uh, just regarding uh, Lowry, just regarding the difference and if we should have a sort of difference in looking at cases uh, like Nasser. Uh, Larry Nasser, who, I mean, abused hundreds of young gymnasts over his sort of tenure as a uh, as a doctor with the U.S. national team, and Harvey Weinstein, who again and again um, sexually assaulted sort of young actresses and people who who worked for him, and the cases like Louis C.K., where uh, where the degree of violence, the degree of sexual misconduct is different. Should there be a distinction between discussions of those cases or is it these are all repeat offending men who who should be sort of thrown out of our public dialogue and now looked down upon? I think there's there is a difference essentially with, you know, Louis CK's what he did was awful and I don't think anyone's justifying what he did as lesser, but in the terms of, you know, Larry La- Larry Lass- Larry Nasser and Harvey Weinstein. These were people who had insane amounts of power. And with Larry Nasser as well, trust with these young girls that like he completely abused and destroyed. And um, I think it's with, in the um, Athlete A documentary, they say like that ruined their trust with further doctors in the team and f- coaches. And I think we have to look at when you're abusing people of a certain age, like Larry Nasser did, that fully destroys so many trust uh, and like, boundaries that you have with other people and makes it more difficult moving on in uh, in your life, essentially. Destroys so lives, think, full stop, yeah. 100%. So I do think there should be, you know, harsher sentences for people like Harvey Weinstein and Larry Nasser who did it with so much power and so little regard for the women that they did this to. Um, with Louis C.K., obviously, what he did was awful. It was on a smaller scale and doesn't make it right. But I do think we need to put more of an emphasis on look at the amount of power that these men have and how easily and like how easily and happy they are to sort of wield that and abuse that. 
So what should the distinction be in the public dialogue, sort of outside of the legal system, sort of as a community, university, and society, how should we view sort of differential cases like this, uh, like the types of cases we've been talking about? I think it's a tricky one because obviously it relates to people differently and people will relate to perhaps more to what Louis C.K. did because that's more similar to their personal experience or, you know, a friend's experience in that he was someone on their level, he was a peer, as opposed to Harvey Weinstein, who had that boss sort of element to it, and Larry Nasser, who was that doctor element. So I do think it's kind of on a personal level, it's how different people choose to interpret it, and not interpret it, choose to talk about it. And I think it's not a one-size-fits-all for different people in how we discuss it and how we hold people accountable. Yeah, I think I think that all makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and I think the distinctions that you both made are very interesting. Um, I think it was interesting, the stance you took, Rebecca, that obviously the, you know, Louis C.K. apologising for what he did, you, like, it shouldn't be praised at all I think you know the bar is so low that once you know for someone to feel remorse is a big deal is pretty crazy um and yeah I don't think obviously any apology or remorse um should make a huge difference at all so I agree with with both of your points on that um yeah I guess um we can I guess maybe if you're ready to sort of move on from that general discussion of the Me Too movement and um, maybe just some sort of final points just about the sort of culture that Speak Free Society um, would like to see inside the university, how students can get involved and um, any last information that's a bit more specific to Speak Free Society that you'd like to just chat about. Um, yes basically obviously we have our Instagram, uh, we're still setting up our other social medias but we'll be on Facebook soon um, so next month, obviously, Sexual Assault Awareness Month, I've already spoken about that one. Um, so essentially, we're going to do different events. So there's Denim Day on the 28th of April, uh, which is where you wear denim in recognition of a trial that was judged by the Italian Supreme Court, who ruled that someone who's convicted um, of rape was innocent because the victim was wearing too tight jeans. Um, so on Denim Day, we're hoping to do an event with Last Taboo and the Red Flag Campaign, um, we're also doing a joint book in April with the Tipsgate Readers Society um, revolving around the issue of sexual assault. Um, we haven't chosen what that is yet, but uh, we will soon. Uh, and then we're going to do a big discussion at the end of the month. So we're going to talk about issues of sexual assault and violence um, just as a big group with Red Flag and how what we can do to kind of rent it. Um, obviously, there's support systems at university if anyone that's listening is struggling with this. Uh, we've posted it on our Instagram and we will continue to support it. Um, please don't feel that you have to deal with this alone. Uh, please don't be silenced. Um, there are so many things that you can do. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to report it, but if you can talk to someone, if you can contact an SVLO or contact your college, you will be respond. like, they will help you. Um, so, yeah, just if you feel that you need to talk to someone do not be afraid to contact someone at university they are there to help you uh we are there to promote them and help them help you so yeah 
Just as a, uh, a final thought here, uh, I wanted to ask, what does it mean to be an, an ally in this fight, especially for, for guys who feel like this conversation isn't for them? I think, obviously, uh, sexual assault does happen to men as well, and there's definitely a lot more of a stigma against that um, than there is for women, because it's obviously assumed that it's just to women. Um, and I think with the gender norms that we have in society, that men are the strong, they don't experience things like this, they don't, they don't, they're not victims, um, they can't be victims of these things. So I think to be an ally, especially for men and for the university, is obviously to begin with educating yourself on these issues, understand what it means. Uh, and I think rape culture is very prominent in many areas of society when you have big groups of people. If you witness something that makes you uncomfortable, if you see something online that makes you uncomfortable, report it, speak up about it, don't just let it slide because that could lead to a lot more detrimental things in the future. Um, allies are incredibly important in society where survivors are constantly questioned and judged. Um, for you to, if someone you know is a survivor and they talk to you, to believe them, obviously I've spoken about it, is the most important thing. Don't question them, just believe them. Um, the questioning is for the police, really. Uh, for you, you have to be the support, because they probably all need it, um, as they will feel incredibly alone. So as an ally, you're letting them know that they're not alone, that they are loved and their stories are valid and that they matter. Um, and obviously men do fit into this. They are a part of this. They need to be supporting it just as equally as women support this issue because it does happen to them as well. And that's not um, promoted as much as it is for women, obviously, but it does happen to them as well. And if we can, if as an ally, you can facilitate a shift to a society where we can accept that it happens to both men and women, hopefully it stops eventually. But to just know that you are supporting those people that it happens to and you're not questioning them um, and you're showing that they're not alone in their fight uh, is the most important thing. Yeah, I think, sorry, they were, yeah, those were all such important points. Like, yeah, I think that was so well said. If I could just add a tiny bit on the end of that, I would just say that obviously, obviously people of all genders experience sexual assault and sexual violence, but it is still overall, it is quite gendered. Um, so. I do feel like, you know, men in particular, there's obviously so many ways in which you can be an ally, as Rebecca has noticed, but even in sort of more subtle ways, you know, if you're with your group of friends and you hear your friends saying something that sort of perpetuates rape culture that's that you wouldn't want to say to your female friend's face that you think is derogatory, so I'm just calling them out on that. Um, because I think it is really normalised, you know, when there's no women in the room or women or non-binary people in the room, um, it is very normalised and accepted, but just calling your mates out, and I think even in little ways can sort of send that signal that, you know, this isn't acceptable. Um, so, yeah, I think there's some small ways to, to be an ally as well, as well as all of the bigger, more important things that Rebecca has touched on. Yeah, that's interesting, Ellie. Could you give, like, an example of that? Because in the sort of abstract of call your mates out, it might be sort of easy to go away and, after listening to this, for, forget yeah, so I'm sure we can all sort of imagine examples of the sorts of comments that are made. I'm sure we've all witnessed it. Um, but I think even just when someone makes a comment, just sort of just asking, like, what did you mean by that? Just making them, if it's a joke, just making them explain the joke to you. Like, why is like why is that funny? Just getting to the undertones of it. 
kind of can sort of make people realize like okay you know sort of realize and really emphasize why it's not funny what the joke is right is rooted in um yeah just just literally saying like what did you mean by that and then just calling that and being like that's not cool I don't find that funny um you know would you you know would you say that if it wasn't all just just boys here just men here um just things like that I don't think it has to you know um necessarily always be a massive altercation I think it's just little just letting them know that you know you don't find that funny you don't want to join in you know it's not really it's not tolerated yeah I hope that's helped at all (laughs) and also like yeah and also I think in these in like group situations that when you're with your friends obviously when if they say some kind of joke that's offensive they might not actually realize what that means if you just bring up to them and be like that's not actually that's probably not okay like I don't need to say that your friends respect you and your friends are your friends for a reason so if they just go through life without anyone being like that's wrong they're going to keep doing that kind of thing but if their friend actually is like mm, I don't think that's all right I don't think you should do that then that actually probably make a bigger impact than someone that they don't know telling them something because they're obviously friends with them for a reason yeah I think that is the whole thing it's that it's awful but you know your mates probably respect you more than they respect, you know, some random person calling them out on it. So I think it's just using that influence, just sticking up for women and non-binary people when they're not in the room um, is, really, is a really great way to be an ally, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> All right. If nobody has uh, anything else to sort of add here on the tail end of our discussion, I'm just conscious of the time. Uh, so this has been, yeah, a, a lovely discussion. Thank you so much to uh, to Rebecca and Lowry and Speak Free Society for coming on and Ellie for, for co-hosting here. And uh, yeah, it's been a great discussion. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank Enjoyed you. Enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. No worries. Thank you.